Mike Pompeo's record on Israel uh, is a very easy one. He is a solid friend of Israel. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Right now, as we record, CIA director and former congressman from Kansas, Mike Pompeo, is testifying in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as part of his confirmation process to become Secretary of State. Pompeo is obviously intelligent, a patriot, and a successful businessman and politician. He graduated first in his class from West Point. He rose to the rank of captain in the U.S. Army, and he got his law degree from Harvard, where he was on the board of the prestigious Harvard Law Review. Just last year, the Senate voted 66 to 32 to confirm Pompeo as CIA director. So you might think it would be smooth sailing this time around. But that doesn't seem to be the case. A number of senators have said that they view this confirmation differently. Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, for example, has been strident in his opposition to Pompeo's nomination. This nomination couldn't come at a more critical moment for American diplomacy. The Syrian regime has once again used chemical weapons in its war on its own people. The administration is preparing to meet with North Korea. A deadline is fast approaching to determine whether the U.S. will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. And we're eagerly awaiting the Trump administration's proposal for Israeli-Palestinian peace. AJC has submitted questions to our friends, the senators on the Foreign Relations Committee, which have doubtless helped to inform their questioning. Dialing in from AJC's D.C. office to talk with us about Pompeo's confirmation is Jason Isaacson, AJC Associate Executive Director for Policy and Managing Director of our Office of Government and International Affairs. Jason's travel schedule is as taxing as any Secretary of State's, and he is a welcome guest in the halls of power across the Middle East and North Africa, in Europe, in Asia, Latin America, and beyond. Before coming to AJC, Jason served as Chief of Staff to Senator Chris Dodd, so he's also no stranger to the Senate's important role in confirming presidential nominees. Jason, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks very much, Steffi. It's always good to be here. Before we dive in to assessing Mike Pompeo and and talking about the issues of the moment, I want to close the book on Rex Tillerson's tenure as Secretary of State. What is the state of the State Department? Not what it should be, not close to what it should be. I think many people thought when Rex Tillerson assumed the secretaryship that this was a man with extensive executive experience, worldly experience, someone who could bring the background of negotiation with Europe, with Russia, with Middle East oil suppliers, excuse me, to to bear in the complicated diplomatic world that he had never been in, but that he should be able to master if you can if you can master the negotiation over billion-dollar oil deals, perhaps you should be able to master the negotiations over other issues. He had uh, the support of many in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and uh, one easy um, confirmation by the full Senate. Did not seem to be especially close to President Trump, but seemed to embody many qualities that people thought would make him a good Secretary of State. He talked the talk. 
Um, what ended up happening, of course, was um, quite the opposite. Uh, his management skills did not seem to be transferable from the business world to the world of diplomacy. Um, he made the efficiency of the State Department uh, his highest priority, or so he told State Department employees in one memorable exchange. Um, and in fact, it was not efficient. Um, the State Department bled foreign service officers, uh, senior diplomats with decades of important um, world-class experience left the State Department, um, not a trickle, but really in a, in, a, in a flood. And we are now a much depleted diplomatic corps uh, on behalf of the United States. So the job of the next Secretary of State is to rebuild the State Department. And frankly, Mike Pompeo, in the opening discussions that he had with members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, made it clear that that is a priority that uh, that he will he will pursue, and and it's it's welcome. So uh, Rex Tillerson made some important uh, statements in the course of his service as Secretary, um, launched a, a reorganization plan that never got off the ground really, uh, and was ill conceived, but cost a lot of money. Um, <laughs> lost a lot of diplomats, discouraged people from being Foreign Service officers. Um, it's a weaker State Department than it was when he inherited it. Let's hope that Mike Pompeo can reverse all of that. Jason, I think it's impossible to overstate the challenge that awaits uh, Mike Pompeo uh, or whomever is ultimately confirmed as Secretary of State at Foggy Bottom at the State Department. Uh, Senator Jim Risch, a Republican of Idaho, uh, today highlighted during the uh, confirmation hearing that there are 37 vacant ambassadorships. That includes places like South Korea, like Egypt, Jordan, Turkey. Um, There are top-level positions at the State Department uh, vacant, as you said. Is Pompeo going to be good for the department? And and there's some some nuance here. I think is he going to be good for U.S. foreign policy? There's there's the distinction here between how do we think he'll perform as a manager and how do we think he'll perform as a diplomat. That's an important uh, series of questions. So uh, obviously, one part of all of this is whether the world perceives him as conveying the message from Washington, the word from Washington, the word from the president of the United States, whether he seems to have the trust of the president. That clearly was lacking with Rex Tillerson, at least in the last half of, let's say, of his tenure. Um, if, If Mike Pompeo, as the secretary of state, is seen as representing the president, it's hugely significant, and it's a big change, a positive change. Um, whatever the policies are, it's important that we have a Secretary of State who speaks for the President and speaks for the United States. Um, in terms of management, look, it has to be said that filling jobs in the State Department is not just the work of the Secretary of State. There's a whole process that must be gone through, um, particularly when we're talking about political appointees to the positions of Under Secretary of State, um, of Assistant Secretary of State. And there are many of these Assistant Secretaries' uh, positions that are open uh, in key places. Uh, one, it was just announced uh, a couple of days ago, uh, there is a, a nominee for Assistant Secretary for Near East Affairs. Fifteen months into the administration, we now have finally a designated and appointed uh, Assistant Secretary. We have to go through a confirmation process. But that's just in, in one extremely complicated part of the world, 
finally there's going to be someone in charge um, replacing an acting assistant secretary who's been quite good but has not been a political appointee. That's just in one area, but there are so many others that are that are awaiting confirmation. But it's not just up to the Secretary of State. It's also up to the presidential personnel operation in the White House that has to vet people who are political appointees as well. And, and there's been real sluggishness and inefficiency in that department. So we need to see some changes in the way presidential appointees are processed, um, the confirmation, the, the appointment of the ambassadorships, as you, as you say, we're way behind where we should be at this stage in administration. Uh, and again, that's, that's State Department, but it's especially what's going on in the, in the White House. So there need to be some, some changes in, in, in that department as well. So it's a combination of getting the, the process up and running in a way that it hasn't been, and then managing this foreign policy mechanism. If, if we have a Secretary of State who truly does represent the president, can speak for the president in not only international discussions, international negotiations and confrontations and exchanges, but also interdepartmental discussions, um, can carry a message forward, will be leagues ahead of where we have been over the last year and a quarter. That point you just closed with, how important it is for the Secretary of State to be someone who represents the president. Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican from Florida, made the same point uh, during the confirmation hearings. He said something to the effect of, when the Secretary of State comes to town, everyone needs to know that that person is coming representing uh, the president. Uh, I, I I think certainly there is widespread agreement that Pompeo is someone much more in line with President Trump than Rex Tillerson ever was. Look, you have to you have to remember it, it was not that many months ago in the midst of this crisis that's been created in the the, the Arabian Gulf where you have Qatar um, being sort of separated from the Gulf Cooperation Council countries by Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, Egypt and Bahrain as well, part of this quartet of Arab countries that have distanced themselves from Qatar. Uh, this Qatar crisis, uh, you had efforts by the United States to try to mend this crisis or to heal this uh, this wound that had been created in the GCC. So Rex Tillerson jumped in, tried to get the parties together. And then you had the president at one point, this is last year, uh, saying that he's wasting his time trying to solve this problem. Uh, you can't have the secretary of state put out one message and uh, the White House put out a message that's 180 degrees different. I don't think we're going to get that with Mike Pompeo and the president. Just before we turn to the issues at hand, I, I wanted to ask also about the special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. We had Ira Foreman, who last held that job uh, on this uh, show a few weeks back, and he got uh, we got a sense from him of of the important role uh, that this position plays in in keeping U.S. diplomatic influence focused uh, on fighting anti-Semitism abroad. We've pushed for this role to be filled. We successfully pushed for it to be funded this year. But what's the status on that? Uh, Have we received any assurances from Pompeo that he's going to fill it? Um, We've gotten assurances from the administration in many ways that they are going to fill it. We are waiting for a specific word from the the secretary-designate. We asked him in questions that we submitted to Foreign Relations Committee members that are being used in the questioning that took place in the course of Thursday as we are recording this uh, this podcast, that he be grilled on that question. As we're talking, this discussion may be going on. So I, I don't know whether our question is being posed right at this moment. But in fact, these questions have been put to him. He is clearly aware that this is a, an urgent issue on the minds of not just those of us who follow the issue closely, but members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the Senate in general, other members of Congress have written to the uh, 
the to the secretary designate and to the previous secretary and of course to the president about this issue uh, it is um, look uh, this is a position that was created by law 14 years ago um, AJC has worked with a, a succession of special envoys given what is happening in in the world given the the, the spike in the incidence of anti-semitism especially in Europe of violent anti-semitism um, there is no excuse to uh, abandon the field the United States has played a leadership role in combating anti-semitism globally uh, this is the time to uh, to fill that job immediately we will continue to urge the administration to uh, to move this forward America is now at war for the longest period of time that our country has ever been consecutively at war. Uh, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy has raised concerns uh, about having the combination of Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, the new national security advisor, being the main voices in President Trump's ear. He thinks that they are both aggressive. People have raised concerns that the two of them are particularly hawkish. Is this an alarmist view? Is is Pompeo a war hawk who we should be worried about serving as America's chief diplomat? I think that in the early um, hour or two of the confirmation hearing in the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Mike Pompeo addressed this to some degree, talking about his military background, the fact that one can expect those who have served in combat, served in uniform, have a greater respect for the importance of diplomacy uh, for settling conflicts uh, peacefully, uh, I, I I know that this is um, this has been said about Pompeo and and about uh, John Bolton as well, the new national security advisor. Uh, certainly, one can find on the records of both gentlemen uh, uh, statements about uh, the Iraq War or about other uh, conflicts that the United States uh, must play a more aggressive role, asserting American power, using American power. Um, at the same time, one hopes that uh, because of the experience that uh, Pompeo had in uniform, uh, his experience in the CIA, which uh, by all accounts was a, a very positive uh, experience, um, well regarded by counterparts in other countries, um, including, one must say, his counterparts in Israel and among the Palestinian Authority, uh, where he developed good working relationships uh, on both sides of that uh, of that divide. I, I, I got to believe that uh, he will be more tempered and 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 uh, uh, and thoughtful in approaching these issues than some of the statements that one has seen on the record uh, would indicate. Um, obviously, this will have to be watched closely, but I wouldn't start with the uh, supposition that we have uh, you know war hawks uh, running national security policy. Uh, we will be watching closely, though. In November 2016, just after the presidential election, AJC worked to convene the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council uh, and since then has helped steer the council, a group of Jewish and Muslim uh, leaders from all sectors of American society, toward pushing for increased hate crime legislation at the federal level. The list of friends that Mike Pompeo keeps is something that has been flagged as by American Muslims is very alarming. Uh, he is um, close with people like Pamela Geller, Frank Gaffney, Bridget Gabriel. I don't know if these names mean anything to our listeners, but certainly uh, they are people who play constant uh, antagonistic roles toward the American Muslim community. Are we concerned about that and also about the impact that that might have on America's relationship uh, with Muslim countries abroad? 
I think it's I think it's something we have to keep an eye on. Obviously, um, we have a, a, a big investment as a country in outreach to the Muslim world. We are not going to solve the problems of uh, radical Islamist uh, activity uh, in the Middle East, in Europe, elsewhere in the world uh, if we do not have the full cooperation, the partnership uh, of, uh, of of Muslim leadership of uh, prominent people in that community uh, around the world. We do have such cooperation. We need more of it. Um, I believe that uh, one could say from looking at, the again, the record of the last uh, 15 months or so uh, at the CIA that uh, Mike Pompeo has been able to demonstrate uh, cooperation and partnership with, uh, with counterparts uh, in Muslim-majority countries, um, with Arab countries, uh, that suggests that uh, perhaps the friendships, the alliances, the associations that uh, you have appropriately identified that uh, that have in some ways uh, marked, um, not in a positive way, his record in the past uh, will be um, set aside as he uh, reckons with the world as the world exists and the partnerships that we must have, that we must forge if we are going to defeat the danger of, uh, of radical Islamist uh, ideology uh, and, and activity. So I I, I am certainly concerned, and our, clearly our partners, our friends uh, in Muslim community with whom we uh, have together forged the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council uh, that uh, is really a proud accomplishment of AJC and offers great promise to resolve problems that affect both of our communities and the wider, uh, the wider society. Um, uh, we have in good conscience to, uh, to be careful and to watch closely how um, this behavior is uh, is evidenced in in, in the time as, uh, of his secretaryship, but but from what we have seen so far at the CIA, um, I think that um, that we have to put in context some of the the comments that he made earlier and the associations that he forged earlier. So so yes, the the very short answer to your question that I have been playing with for the last five minutes <laughs> is yes, there are things that he has said and associations he has made that bear critical and close monitoring. But the performance that we have seen in government uh, tells a different story. And we are hopeful that we will see uh, continued efforts to reach out and to cooperate and to partner with, uh, with Muslim communities and Muslim leaders who have the same views and the same desires that all of us share. Well, speaking of our Muslim allies abroad and our European allies as well, for that matter, May 12th is the deadline that President Trump has set, the date by which he will withdraw America from the Iran nuclear deal unless it has been improved uh, to his liking. Do we have any sense that Mike Pompeo will be more measured in his approach to fixing the deal? Well, let me start by saying that uh, that in 2015, when the deal was announced, uh, AJC spent a good deal of time examining it, um, had a private conversation with um, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, uh, with a separate conversation with Wendy Sherman, the Under Secretary of State, who had negotiated the deal with our um, with the, the the P5 Plus One partners, um, and we ultimately uh, came out against the deal. We felt that it uh, fell short of what the president had promised and what was really required, and that it would expire too soon, uh, had other flaws that uh, that simply wouldn't prevent uh, military nuclear capability by, um, by the Iranians, uh, which they clearly were driving for. So we have been against it, but at the same time, once it was adopted and once it was put in place, um, we have been very wary about unraveling it uh, concerned that if we were to pull out of the nuclear deal, 
um, the Iranians could restart their program without the international sanctions um, levied against them that actually brought them to the table in the first place and that have still that that were applied until they actually signed on to something that at least would push back for 10 or 15 years their military nuclear capability. Um, what we would like to see, what we wanted to see then and what we would like to see now uh, and what really would be in the best interest of the United States and, frankly, the, the world would be a prolonged, uh, really an indefinite um, uh, constraint on their inability to move forward with a military nuclear capability. Uh, and that is within the realm of possibility. Now, as you point out, there's a deadline, and the deadline is coming up in a month or a little bit less than a month. It was said early in the Pompeo confirmation hearing uh, in the Foreign Relations Committee that um, he was going to attend to this early on, that as soon as he's confirmed, he is going to be preparing for further negotiations, especially with our E3 partners, the, the French, the Germans, the, the, the British, uh, with whom the United States has been negotiating over the last couple of months. There have been several rounds of negotiations in London, in Paris, now in the United States just a few days ago, um, in, in, to, to try to address the main flaws of the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal. And I think it's within the realm of possibility that we'll get there. I, I know that the, the Europeans aren't eager to un, not only not undo, to, to again, uh, to open up the discussion over the elements of the, of the nuclear deal. But they recognize that if the United States, which is really the elephant in the room, uh, pulls out of this deal, it is going to uh, introduce the possibility of I don't want to say a trade war because it's not a trade war, but of a of a, a a serious conflict between the United States and our European allies. We had Dan Shapiro, uh, President Obama's ambassador to Israel, uh, on the podcast about a month ago, and this was right after Israel had shot down an Iranian drone uh, that had entered uh, Israeli airspace, um, and. Uh, he mentioned uh, how disappointed he was in Rex Tillerson, who was headed to the region anyway and could have easily added a stop uh, in Israel, um, but chose not to for whatever reason. He said that he would have thought that a secretary of state would want to take that opportunity um, to, to go out of their way a little bit to stand by Israel uh, in that moment, uh, particularly uh, representing an administration that has done its best to really take a staunchly uh, pro-Israel stance. Um, do we expect that Mike Pompeo will be more comfortable playing the role of, uh, of friend of Israel? And uh, also, do we expect to see good things from him and, and from his State Department working toward a two-state solution? The issue of uh, Mike Pompeo's record on Israel uh, is, is a very easy one. Uh, he has uh, proven uh, in his terms in the House of Representatives, uh, representing a district in Kansas, that he is a solid friend of Israel. Repeated uh, statements and votes uh, that he cast suggest that uh, his visit to the region as well suggests that uh, that he's a strong, uh, solid supporter of Israel and recognizes the importance of this alliance uh, for U.S. national security interests. Uh, as far as the ability of the Secretary of State and the State Department in general to move an Israeli-Palestinian peace process forward, you know, in this administration, that file was transferred to the White House um, from the State Department. So you have uh, Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt leading an effort to try to advance Israeli-Palestinian peace with many visits to the region, many consultations. And, and, and one hopes that uh, either before 
the opening of the U.S. Embassy on May 14th in Jerusalem, or perhaps sometime after that, if uh, if that causes some um, uh, momentary friction that uh, we need to get through before people can refocus on the need to, to move forward, uh, that that plan will be put on the table and we'll be able to get back to the business of trying to resolve this uh, this long conflict. I believe that, uh, that you will see support by... Um, by Secretary Pompeo if he is confirmed for that effort. Well, let's just do the political math here. There are 51 Republican senators. Uh, John McCain is home in Arizona battling cancer. He's not voting. Uh, That brings him down to 50, which is still fine for them uh, because Vice President Pence can cast uh, the tie-breaking vote. Uh, But Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky is saying that he won't vote to confirm uh, Pompeo, uh, or, by the way, the woman nominated to replace him at the CIA, Gina Haspel. Do you think Democrats are going to cross party lines to save President Trump's nominee? I think that um, many Democrats um, who may have sharp disagreements with positions that President Trump has taken and that uh, Mike Pompeo has taken and is likely to take, nevertheless want to have a functioning U.S. government, mm-hmm. uh, particularly at a time when the United States uh, faces conflicts uh, around the world um, when we are facing the possibility of negotiations with and possibly conflict with North Korea, when we're uh, staring at the possibility of uh, conflict uh, in Syria that could involve Iran and especially Russia, when there are other issues in Europe and in Latin America, which mostly, frankly, we've been ignoring Latin America except for talking about building a wall. So around the world, there are issues that demand the attention of a foreign policy establishment, a national security establishment, with a secretary of state at the helm. So despite disagreements, I do expect that there will be sufficient uh, support uh, in the Democratic caucus in the Senate to uh, to, to, to uh, vote for Mike Pompeo. But, um, but I guess we have to see what happens as the confirmation process continues and as the discussion takes place. It may be that uh, he will not we will, we will know this over the coming days. It may be that um, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, will not vote for Mike Pompeo, but it can still clear the Senate. Um, it doesn't have to be approved by the, by the committee uh, before we get to that point. Well, whatever happens, here is to a return to American global leadership and to a strengthening of American diplomacy around the world. Jason, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Steffi. And yes, here, here to the notion of American global leadership. It must continue. Last week, we chatted with Ambassador Dennis Ross, a veteran of multiple American administrations, about the recent protests in Gaza. Our conversation with Ambassador Ross also touched on Iran's behavior in the region and the future of the Iran nuclear deal. We wanted to bring you that fascinating segment now. You recently wrote uh, in the Washington Post warning the Trump administration not to ditch the Iran deal. Um, what what was your argument to uh, to stick with that deal? Well, you know, I, I wrote the argument from a somewhat different perspective than most because I w- I said in the in this piece that I was not a fan of the JCPOA, and the neither Iran. were we at AJC. Right. right, and 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 my reason for it is because it legitimized starting the year t- uh, 2030 a very large nuclear infrastructure that has no real limits in terms of the size of the quality of what the nuclear program is that the, that the Iranians can have. And that means that there'll be a threshold nuclear state. Uh, their breakout time will be close to zero. So I wasn't a fan for those reasons. But 
it is a deal that bought time. And the problem is the Europeans have been trying to address the some of the concerns that the Trump administration has said and laid out. Uh, and if the Trump administration, in a sense, simply ignores the effort that was made, walks away from the deal, they walk away by themselves. And the Europeans in those circumstances, particularly because the Iranians are good at playing upon their fears, uh, will rush to keep the Iranians in the deal. They will give them incentives because they're fearful that if the Iranians walk away too, and the Iranians are threatening to produce hundreds, you know, 190,000 uh, centrifuges within two years, the Europeans will fear this is going to produce the march towards a war. So they'll do everything they can to keep them in the deal. And so that was part of my concern, but it wasn't all of it. It looks to me like the administration will walk, if it chooses to walk away, will walk away and try to suggest this is being tough on Iran when it's not even the most serious issue that we face from the Iranians. The most serious issue we face is what they're doing in the region. And, and the administration at this point is not countering the Iran's in the region. They don't have a strategy to do that. Uh, the president himself is saying, we're going to get out of Syria and leave it to others. And that's where the Iranians are building a land bridge uh, to the Mediterranean. They're creating a military infrastructure within Syria that threatens Jordan, threatens Israel. If you've been to the Golan Heights, you'll see a forward post that has the Quds Force and Hezbollah three and a half miles away. Uh, they're they're building military infrastructure to basically present and project power uh, in Syria and from Syria, uh, and the you know the net effect of this is there is the potential for a real war between Israel uh, and Iran and Hezbollah in Syria and Lebanon, and uh, that's a war that you know where it starts, but you don't know where it ends. So my concern is the focus on the JCPOA is actually a misplaced focus at this point. And the last thing we should want is to be alone in terms of what we're doing vis-a-vis Iran and walking away from the deal puts us in a position that that's precisely what's going to result. Well, I'm really glad that you're making this argument because it's one that really resonates with us here at AJC and and with many others who are warning about uh, Iran's adventurism and and the rest of of their bad behavior. Uh, But nevertheless, it it seems that there is a sense that, especially now with John Bolton uh, as the national security advisor and Mike Pompeo in its state, uh, both of whom are are very hawkish on uh, on Iran and and have spoken very disparagingly um, about the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, it seems like Trump is more likely than ever to walk away. Do you think that that's a, a correct read? And what would happen then in the aftermath of that? It certainly is a, a logical expectation, given the positions of both Pompeo and Bolton. I would say this. Pompeo is going to be Secretary of State, and you really have to ask the question of whether he wants the first move that's made when he becomes Secretary of State to be something that's going to create a breach with the European alliance. Mm-hmm. So he at least may think twice about this. The second thing that they both they both will at least have to think about is, what's the day after? You know, what's their strategy then? Uh, on the one hand, the, if the Iranians choose not to walk away, which I think they won't because they'll want to play the victim right. and play upon European fears so that the Europeans reach out to them, what is their strategy uh, for dealing with that? You know, so we'll reestablish the sanctions, but basically they'll just be ours. Uh, and unless they're collective, they won't have that much of an effect on the Iranians. Uh, on the one hand, and yet, you know, the Iranians at some point down the road can also decide, okay, we're not bound by this anymore. 
Now, my guess is they still wait a few more years because they want to build up the relationships and some of the depend- new dependencies economically. Uh, but, you know, what is their strategy? You can look at it in two different ways. I'm saying I don't think they'll walk away because they want to play the victim. But what if they choose not to? What do they say? Okay, the Americans walked away. We're walking away too, and we're going back, and we're going to we're resuming. Now, maybe under those circumstances, is you know, the administration will say, well, then others will join us in sanctions. But if the U.S. is seen as the one that precipitated this, as opposed to the the Iranians being the ones uh, who walked away and initiated it, will we have the kind of uh, following from the rest of the world? It's not at all clear to me. So I think. A question that needs to be posed to the administration, if they walk away, what is their strategy? Just one final question, since you raised Syria a moment ago. There's so many players there. Iran, obviously, as you mentioned, um, the Syrian uh, regime, Russia as well. Um, you have a lot of expertise here that, that I'd love to, to draw upon. President Trump uh, just announced his intention to get U.S. troops uh, out of Syria. And it was reported that that decision led to some friction uh, between him and Prime Minister Netanyahu. From Israel's perspective, if you can uh, put yourself in in those shoes for a moment, uh, what is the best role that the U.S. could be playing in Syria? Well, look, at a minimum, I think you put this in the kind of historical perspective. Historically, the Israelis always said, okay, we can take care of who we deal with in the region. We can't take care of the superpower. We can't take care of what was then the Soviet Union. It's up to the United States to take care of the Soviet Union, and today it would be Russia. Now, you know, by basically staying on the sidelines, we make ourselves uh, largely irrelevant. We're not deterring the Russians. We're not deterring the Iranians. What the Israelis would want is for us to be conveying a very blunt message to the Russians that they're playing with fire, and if there's a conflict, it could draw us in, uh, so that if nothing else, that could deter the Russians or at least give the Russians a reason to do much more to contain the Iranians. But the Prime Minister Netanyahu has made seven trips to, to uh, Russia to see Putin uh, in the last year and a half. Now, he's had two objectives. One was to do deconfliction. The other was to contain the Iranians. On the former, he's been successful. On the latter, he has not. Uh, the Russians have abetted Iranian power. The key here is to create an incentive for the Russians to contain the Iranians so the the spread of the Iranians, the further growth within Syria, uh, the expansion of the Shia militias, uh, the development of possible fabricating uh, advanced guidance systems for rockets uh, that Hezbollah has, 120,000, that that doesn't proceed because that will trigger a war at some point. The U.S. needs to be in a position where it's conveying what the consequences of that will be, and it has to be prepared to act in a way that shows that the words are real. Right now, we're not doing that, at least with regard to the Russians. Ambassador Ross, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Facebook. Good for the Jews? It's not often that C-SPAN is must-see TV, but this week was perhaps an exception. That's because this week, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg testified before House and Senate committees about Facebook's data collection policies. 
the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and Russian attempts to sway the 2016 presidential election using his platform. Pundits spent most of their time making fun of senators for their lack of tech fluency and of Zuckerberg for his general awkwardness, but he made one important concession that stood out. For what seems to have been the first time, Zuckerberg conceded that Facebook bears responsibility for the content that its users post. This admission means that Facebook will have to redouble its efforts to fight the hate speech that has too often soiled its pages. For all the potential that social media has to unite the world, too many people use it to spread racist or anti-Semitic views, to bully others, and, I should note, on Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, to propagate Holocaust denial and other hateful conspiracy theories. If, as Zuckerberg testified, Facebook will lead the way in using both human screeners and artificial intelligence to flag and eliminate such hateful dreck, that would be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.